Hey, welcome to the New Home Insights Podcast by John Burns Real Estate Consulting. I'm Dean Worley, your host. Each episode, we're gonna bring you some of the best minds in the housing business talking about some fascinating topics or trend or innovation or issue, just like the one you're about to listen to. Enjoy. Okay, welcome to New Home Insights, the podcast by John Burns Real Estate Consulting. I'm your host, Dean Worley. Today, I actually have two real estate giants on the show with me. Is the legendary John Burns, the founder and CBO of Jbreck, and the even more legendary, sorry about that, John, Emil Haddad, who runs Five Point, one of the biggest land developers around with some of the best master plan sites in California. John has known Emil for a very long time. So, John, I'm going to ask you to give a better introduction than I could. Well, I, re- I really can't think of anybody better to put this in perspective than Emil Haddad. I, I first met Emil in the early 1990s when I was a consultant at KPMG and we were working on the Bromelay account and he was at, at Bromelay uh, right after the SNL collapse. Um, then he Brom, Lennar purchased Bromelay, so Emil became one of the leaders at Lennar, leading them through several cycles and through the last cycle, he emerged with a brand new publicly held land developer company called Five Point Holdings. But he, he's got a really unique background and uh, as, as articulate as anybody I know in putting things in perspective. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to the two of you, and I'm just going to enjoy listening for the most part. All right. So let's start, actually, let's go back a little ways, Emil, if you don't mind. We'll, we'll go back to actually, you had a, a you know, you lived a life, your, your formative years were in Lebanon and Beirut. And I just hope to have you reflect on that a little bit and how maybe it allows you to have, you know, an, an attitude that not, not everyone has about the current COVID-19 and kind of shelter in place world we live in. Sure, Dan. Thank you. And, and John, thanks a lot for the uh, flat, flattering introduction. Um, we have seen a lot together since we started actually working together. And uh, I'm sure that at some point in time, we'll re- reflect back on this period and and put it in our memoir the same way we have done other moments like this. Um, so, Dean, I I grew up in, uh, in Beirut, uh, in Lebanon, and went to the American University of Beirut, actually. And... Uh, for people who might not uh, know much about Lebanon, I mean, Beirut used to be referred to as the Paris of the Middle East up until the Civil War and a very vibrant city. And, uh, in, you know, a, a beautiful city by the Mediterranean. And we had it uh, all good and, and life was very uh, nice and didn't really have an, enough appreciation for it until... Uh, it changed on us, and which is happening to a lot of people right now, where a lot of things that we uh, took for granted today we have an appreciation for. So anyway, uh, war started, the civil war started when I was 17 in 1975, and and um, I lived 11 years through it. Uh, and, and I've always said that uh, my perspective on life and everything that I do day to day, whether it's in business, or my personal life was really shaped by uh, by that period. As you can imagine, um, people uh, established their own personality and views uh, during a period between the ages of the teens and the late 20s. 
and uh, and mine was uh, developed during a very unusual period uh, where we had to navigate a lot of challenges all the way from you know hours of bombings and sitting there you know in, in around an elevator uh, waiting for whether this is going to be the moment or not uh, losing a lot of friends losing family uh, seeing a lot of unfortunate situation around us navigating uh, streets you know with snipers and and going to college and graduating and playing sports and doing everything else that the world was doing, but we were doing it under different conditions. Most of the time we lived, we had no electricity, no running water, and uh, no food, no gas. And, uh, and you know, humans adapt. We all adapt. And, uh, and we adapted to conditions that if you were to look at it from the outside, you would think it's very difficult for people to be able to adapt to that. Um, so a lot of what we're going through right now has been reminding me a lot of that period because when the world goes upside down on you uh, all of a sudden and when just the earth shifts and things that you uh, had and took for granted become something that uh, is a luxury, you know, the symbol of this one is a toilet paper, but I mean, a lot of things the same. Uh, I think that, you know, perspectives change, uh, views change, uh, relationships change, uh, people get tested, uh, people get uh, to react differently. And that's what we're all going through right now. It's not dissimilar than that life. And because I have lived through that and because uh not only did we have to navigate uh, tough conditions as a result of the war, but, you know, talking about the economies, uh, I, I started a company uh, after I graduated and, and the currency devaluated from five pounds to a dollar to three thousand dollars, pounds to a dollar. Uh, so, you know, you go through both the economic as well as the hardship as people and you learn a few things and, and you learn that there's always a good thing that comes out of situations like this. And I know it's very strange to say it now, but, um, but people will view people the day after based on behavior during these periods. And, uh, and if you think about how many people we all are reaching out to, to check on people who you either haven't spoken to for a long time or, or people who, um, you might not have even gotten along with, but you felt the urge to check on them. Those are all positives. We're all in the same boat together right now. We're all fighting the same battle together. As a result, we are now uh, one society in many ways globally. And um, none of us are looking at things except through a very simple lens of survival as, as humans. And and I learned those things. And, and I also learned that as much as it might feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel and everybody's starting to get frustrated and and uh, it feels like, you know, this will never end, it will end. And, uh, and when it does, uh, I believe that we will be stronger, we will be better, we will have a good adjustment of perspective on things. And those who are, who are, 
prepared for moments like this will end up uh, coming out of it stronger. Do you and think those, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no I'm saying those who were, who were not are going to struggle longer than, than those who were prepared. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, you know, folks in the housing industry talk about quote unquote war stories from the housing market. You have real war stories to, to, to learn from. Do you think that allows you to sort of keep calm and carry on and, and keep your head as these times seem very desperate? A hundred percent. I mean, look, I, I, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, my experience has allowed me to stay calm because when you grow up in, in war and, and it's not a day or two, you learn that if you're not going to be calm and if you're not going to stay focused under very tough conditions, the probability of you not surviving becomes higher because you're not thinking, you're just reacting, you're emotional. And as a result, you know, I think that I now have it in my DNA to where I have a very steady way of looking at things and up, mar up markets and down markets and good times and bad times uh, because, you know, you can as actually get even more hurt in, uh, in good times uh, by getting a little bit too drunk with the good times and, and, and therefore you could be hurt. So the answer to your question is, is yes, my... My mother always read a poem for, for me and for my brother called If by Kipling. And it's a great poem for people to read because the starting of the poem talks about if you can keep your head where everybody else is losing theirs, then, you know, you know the, the poem continues and, and establishes what happens. But, yeah, I mean, you live in those conditions and you are trained more to deal with things like this in a much different way. So let's fast forward a little bit to a different experience you had a little later. As John mentioned, you were at Bramley in the 1990s, a big builder developer in California, in Southern California, and was bought out by Lennar in 1995. Those are, you know, those are kind of boom and bust times. What did that experience teach you? Well, you know, I uh, taught me a lot. First of all, you know, I came to this country in 86 and it was really the beginning of the boom of the 80s. And uh, coming from where I came from, uh, I was a, like a kid in a candy store because, I mean, I never saw uh, the amount of construction and growth. Uh, cities like Palmdale and Moreno Valley and places like that were all coming out of the ground. And, you know, I wasn't used to something like that. I was used to seeing one building at a time come out. And, uh, and it, it really had me uh, think about, you know, the drivers behind that. And, and I, I started reaching conclusions, which really was later on what led to the creation of, of Five Point. And I, I'll get to it in a second. And then, you know, in 1990, the world went upside down on us. I, I came to this country with my, uh, with my fiancé, who... We got married here and we've been married now for 34 years. And, and my parents and an aunt who lived with me and got reunited with a brother who came here very young and went to school over here. And we all lived together for five years. We had nothing because we left everything behind when we came. And so in 1990, I was still you know, making probably about $11, $12 an hour. And, uh, and the world goes upside down and with a lot of responsibility that were was on my shoulder and my brother's shoulder. And, uh, and then you start making sure that 
there isn't a day that passes that you lose your job because the people you love are going to be on the street. And, and that actually gives you a very interesting motivation and view. So the Bramley bankruptcy, I remember the experience went from 1990, the market shifts, 1995, our parent company in Canada, after five years of living you, you know, through the downtime, had to file a Chapter 11 or their equivalent of a Chapter 11. That pushed us to file a Chapter 11 here. And, and I, by that time, I had uh, been promoted up to a you know, position of senior management. I was, I think, senior vice president, executive vice president. And there were two of us who were you know, basically the, the top two survivors in the company at that time out of the Bramley uh, situation while we were in bankruptcy. And uh, one of them is Jeff Roos, who's a known name in the industry, and he still is a senior guy at Lamar. And, and he and I were sort of like the two people who one day we figured out, rather than liquidating the company, we're going to try to keep it together. And, and then fate brought us together with Lenar, and we made a decision to partner with them. And that's how actually Lenar came to California. And, and uh, at that time, I had concluded that what I wanted to do is 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 really incubate a company inside Lunar uh, besides my day job that really became Five Point, which was a company that focused on these uh, large redevelopment opportunities in the primary markets in California and start building a new way of uh, cities uh, that were going to be more looking into how people are going to coexist uh, as a result of the digital revolution rather than how we build cities as a product of the industrial revolution, which really were all uh, driven by the automobile and, and everything that we did was all connecting uh, places with uh, with cars and the world going forward looked like it was going to be different and I had reasons. So that was the Bramley experience. But i tell you what, what, what I... I learned at that time. I learned that if you um, if you look at a situation like a bankruptcy when you don't have money and you could actually uh, you know be out of a job and your parents are going to be on the street, if you're willing to keep that perspective, that calmness, and have enough courage to trust yourself and trust the team that is in the trench with you knowing that you all have each other's back, then you can actually turn a situation like that into what became the beginning of Lunar and, and the growth of Lunar. And, it, and, and it, was, it was that simple shift from, you know, oh my God, you know, I'm going to lose my job and we're all going to end up uh, just being dispersed and work for different companies to let's keep everybody together. Let's have each other's back and let's, work together in the trench, and let's give it a shot to see if we can keep this company together. That that small shift uh, became a much larger opportunity for not only for us, but for a lot of other people as well. So you see, you see opportunity. I mean, that, that experience helps you kind of navigate the downturns and you look to the downturns for opportunity. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah, I like we're, we're a cyclical business, and uh, you know during the Bramley period, we had our bankruptcy counsel called Bill Lobel, and 
I'll never forget, forget it. Bill said to me, out of uh, chaos comes opportunity. And, and it, it's so true. I mean, every situation provides you an opportunity. And we often are so much distracted by the challenges we have. We don't see the opportunities that are in front of us. But as a cyclical business, and, and you know, our industry is a cyclical business, uh, you know, we always are looking for how do you take advantage of good times to position yourself for any shift uh, when the market shifts down. And when the market is down and everybody's running scared, this is the time that we believe is to position yourself for the good times. So, you know, Five Point was created in 2009, in the early part of 2009, when everybody thought housing is dead and the world is coming to an end and there will never, ever be, uh, you know, an opportunity to build and sell homes. At that time, a lot of people were speculating and it was at that time that I made a decision with a few people to join me to start the company. And we built it and took advantage of the period between 2009 and 2011 or 12 when, when the market started coming back to reposition the assets. We recapitalized them, restructured everything from the capital point of view, repositioned approvals and became operational. And John will tell you those were not easy uh, things to do during that time. And as a result, when the market came back, we were well positioned to start taking advantage of the good market. And while the market was uh, doing well between the 2012 and the 2019, uh, rather than us you know, chasing growth, we chose to create uh, value out of our own assets and delever. And, and as a matter of fact, when we went public in 2017, we went public with 40,000 home sites and 23 million square feet of commercial uh, opportunities to be built with zero debt. And that was very important. So that's what I mean by you manage for the down and the up and the up and the down. Yeah. Speaking of, of your portfolio, so you have three phenomenal master plans in, in California, one is, two in Southern California, one in Northern California. Maybe your crown jewel right now is the Great Park master plan in Irvine and Orange County in Southern California. Tell us a little about Great Park and maybe what's been happening there since COVID-19 hit. Well, I mean, the Great Park is the most advanced uh, right now, and, uh, and we are very proud of it. it, it there's a lot of uh, things that are happening that are really have nothing to do with uh, real estate as we think about it, because we tend to think of what we do more as a community builder and not they're not differentiated by residential, commercial, or industrial. So it's unusual to have a community where you speak about it in terms of a you know a, a partnership on with Live Nation on a twelve thousand seat amphitheater or a largest sports complex in the country or a partnership with the Ducks or partnership with the City of Hope or things like that. But what we're trying to do is really build a city that we view as a city that's going to coexist the way the future is going to look. Now, in terms of what's happening, so in um, in the first uh, four weeks uh, or five weeks since uh, since we all became much more sensitized to uh, COVID-19, in the first two weeks, we went from an average of about nine to 10 homes per week we jumped to 24 homes and then 25 homes. 
Then we went back to nine. And then we ended up going to zero sales. Uh, and then we had a week where we had uh, zero sales and a couple of cancellations. Interesting enough, this morning I got the sales report and last week we had three sales and zero cancellation. Hey, good time. And, 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 and it's interesting because, uh, you know, the zero cancellation tells you that although people are having difficulty getting their mortgages right now and with all of the stay-at-home situation, but still people are um, committed to the homes and closing. And more importantly, I mean, to have three sales when we have uh, all of our sales offices are closed and people are buying remotely, you know, is an interesting one. That doesn't define a trend yet, but I I thought it was a very interesting thing because I'm not sure John would probably know more, but I'm not sure how many people can say they're selling new homes right now uh, without uh, without uh, any interaction? Yeah, you know, it's been a, it's been a tough slog for for most builders for sure. And the, the cans are you're, you're right. One week is nowhere near a trend, but the but the maybe the the simmering of the cancellations, which have been skyrocketing, is is, is hopeful at least. Yeah, I think I think so. And look, uh, you know, the other thing that has nothing to do with uh, your typical home sales or commercial that uh, that we've been focusing on, on at the Great Park is we have a partnership with the City of Hope and other healthcare providers. And one of the things that we've been focusing on is, is creating a uh, model here of how uh, the future of healthcare delivery might look like, including utilizing technology and, and, uh, and diagnostics at home and things like that. And that's been now a process we've been going through it for several years. And uh, we believe that out of this situation, there's going to be an acceleration of, uh, of such type of deliveries and telemedicine and things like that are going to become a reality. And we are working right now on putting together a, a pilot project that, that allows us to use sensors for monitoring people at home with uh, real-time monitoring and, and make sure that if somebody gets a scratchy throat, they don't run to the emergency and if they're not sick they might be exposing themselves or overwhelmed and and start really proving up a a concept of uh of how your home becomes your diagnostic um uh you know goes through diagnostics with you with all the technology and 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 try to bring healthcare to the home rather than have everybody who's not feeling well go to a centralized location and that's a big part of our focus at the Great Park right now as a model. So, so really, kind of embedding at least sort of early stage primary healthcare into the home, into the whole community, into each individual home. Is that that's the idea? I, exactly. I mean, before we before the COVID nineteen, we uh, we were uh, already in advanced discussions with companies like Massimo and others about incorporating sensors in schools and commercial buildings and homes that can monitor uh, temperature. And uh, interesting enough, that was before we all ended up here. My point used to be, if you think about how many people walk in during the flu season uh, and into an office and, uh, and infect you know, several people and how many hours are lost because we don't send somebody home who's already sick because we don't know that they're sick. If we have an ability to do that in schools, 
we will be uh, saving a lot of lost hours. That was the thinking. Now, obviously, we have a much different perspective even on this. So, yeah, I think that we we have technology today that allows you to be monitored and and have everything you need uh, for your doctor to know how you're doing while you're still at home. And uh, and we are really right now in advanced thinking and discussions to start proving up that model. That's interesting. We'll have a you have a friendly hologram doctor who will show up in your living room and tell you what's what. Well, I mean, I don't know that we're the hologram yet, but I can tell you here today, you can have your doctor on the screen yeah, and they can monitor exactly what they need to monitor. And, you know, you don't need to go see them. I want the AI, but that's just me. Yeah, How- well, I, that, that's coming next, but be careful. Yeah. That will be dangerous. That's true. Uh, what's your sense of how buyers are? You know, obviously we have COVID-19 right in the middle of it. We could argue about how long before we sort of ease back from sheltering in place, but that day will come. What do you think your sense of how buyers will react when we do start to lift the shelter in place orders? So, look, I I think that um, this is not a situation that uh, is similar to the 2008-2009 period. Uh, th- those were different drivers that got us to that place. And as a result, there was uh, the loss of jobs and the regain of jobs uh, took a longer period. Uh, so if you start with jobs, which are a lot of them are being lost right now, those are jobs that are lost temporarily. So if you're a nurse at a dentist office or if you work at a hairdresser or, you know, a small restaurant, you obviously have been either furloughed or got laid off temporarily, and you are now filing for unemployment, and therefore the unemployment numbers are going up very quickly. But once we're allowed to come back into a more of a normal life, the dentist is going to open and the you know hairdresser is going to open, and those type of businesses will bring the employment down, very unemployment numbers down quickly. And therefore, those jobs really are not being lost. They've just been put on ice for a little bit until we come out of the situation. Are so, you worried? I'm sorry, I was just asking, are you worried, to, to finish that thought, are you worried at all about the, the ability or, or the psychology of interacting for those folks after the lift? I think Bill Gates has said that he thinks a lot of people aren't going to go back to doing those things you just said until there's a vaccine. Are you worried at all about, about the yeah, people I, I, do those things? I think there's going to be a short-term uh, period where people are going to be very uh, apprehensive. And I think that uh, we're going to be uh, used to wearing masks and seeing people wearing masks for, for a long time. I think that there, there are some, some businesses that will, uh, will take longer. Uh, I think that some industries like the airline industry and the hotel industry will probably be lagging behind. But look... Humans will always find a way to go back to do what they always did. And uh, and I don't think there's going to be a long-term uh, adjustment in behavior to where people are not going to go to restaurants or bars or, or interact. I don't think so. I actually think that, yes, there is going to be a period where people are going to be worried, whether it is uh, when we find a vaccine or whether when we start seeing that there's no more uh, cases being announced, but but I think 
people are gradually going to start coming back into a normal life. Some will feel more comfortable doing it earlier than others. But when all is said and done, whether it's this year from now or six months or nine months or a year and a half, it doesn't matter what the period is. It's not a very long period. And I think you're going to see that everybody's going to be anxious to go back to a normal life. And then the jobs start to roll back. I think that the jobs will roll back. I think that that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a tail to this. There's not going to mean hardship. Uh, We're fortunate enough in this country to be able to keep on injecting money and printing money. And I think that, you know, the government seems to be very much focused on doing what uh, it did in in 2008, 2009, and that is to keep on creating, uh, you know, stimuli for, for the economy but I, I, I think if you look at the fundamentals, the fundamentals have not changed from the day before. Uh, I think that, as I said, there's going to be a little bit of a uh, behavioral uh, shift for a while that might create a delay, mainly for like airlines and, and hotels. But I think a lot of the small businesses that lost a lot of these jobs are going to get them back quickly. And and and, and would following that up and the folks start going back to new home sales offices. Yeah, yeah, they will. And look, I think that if we want to go back in history and try to extrapolate from, you know, a, uh, a situation in history that could inform us about how the future is going to look like, I probably, for us as a country here, I would probably say the post 9-11 period would be more appropriate than your typical recessions like 2008, 2009. Because it, it happened as a result of a shock to the system that created this, uh, this uh, change in behavior and, and mindset. And if you look at what happened after that, the, the government ended up pumping a lot of money in the system. And that put a lot of capital in the hands of people. And uh, we all know that uh, the residential uh, you know, market ended up benefiting. Uh, mortgages were cheap. There was a lot of capital. Creative ideas come, came into the picture, some good, some not good. Yeah. And we also, the bubble that got built. I think that we have a very similar dynamic right now. We have similar factors. I think you have a lot of money that's going to get in the system. Rates are down, which means mortgage rates are going to go down. And once banks uh, get a little bit more comfortable with lending, because right now in the last week or two, banks are being very careful about uh, FICA scores and things like that because they're worried about you know, giving a mortgage to somebody who might lose their job. But once that stabilizes, I think that's going to be a better environment uh, for home buying and I think we're all getting reacquainted with the beauty of a home, uh, the, not, not the aesthetic beauty, but how good it feels to be home and connected with home. And I called it back then, and I call it right now, it's, it's a cocoon factor. We all are going through it right now. And I think that our relationship with our home is going to be stronger for a long time and as a result of the two factors, I think that you're going to see that the residential uh, market is going to actually be a beneficiary out of this when it's all done. Said and done. 
Do you think that'll include or, or translate into home and land prices? Do you see what what do you see happening in the near term, at least, with home prices and land prices? Well, I, I think that from my perspective, once we readjust to a uh, to a more of a the path that we were on before uh, this detour that we all had to take. Uh, I think that nothing has changed from the fundamentals. We already had a huge imbalance of supply demand. And I look, I, I, I never, John will tell you, I never talk about uh, one housing market because the housing market is very much driven by different factors in each of the sub-markets and, and it's very much a micro market. So I can speak to, my, to the markets we're in, but I can't speak to every market in the country. But the markets within already had a huge pent-up demand, no supply. I think, if anything, there's going to be a delay factor now because a lot of people have put on hold things and will will probably keep things on hold for a while, which means that it's creating more of a constraint on supply. Uh, I think that the demand is going to be the demand. Uh, and I think that that imbalance of supply-demand is really the cornerstone of, of you know, our company because our company strategy has all been driven, always been driven in getting into markets where uh, it's a very high barrier to entry and, and markets where very limited supply. And by us dominating the supply in each of these markets, we feel that that gives us a lot of protection against any shifts in demand as a result of any economic shifts. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think that anything is going to change. I think there's going to be, as I said, we took a detour. And once we find our way back to the path we were on, and we will, um, I think that you're going to see uh, potentially even more of a appreciation in home prices than we had before because of the, you know, artificial constraint that we create within this period. How do you, do you think there will be any changes, any lasting changes at least, for home builders post-COVID? Um, I don't know that there's anything right now that I see that will have a change to home builders. I think home builders before COVID-19 were at that point in the cycle where they started uh, uh, revisiting some of their business models, including... Uh, how do they buy land, how much of the land they want to buy on the balance sheet, how much they off the balance sheet. I think we started seeing some consolidation in the industry, which is typical when you reach a certain point in the cycle. Uh, I think that the you know builders were starting to think about how do they counter the cost. I think that this is going to actually adjust things. I think I think as a result of this, builders will be able to at least for a short period, get more favorable cost structures to build homes and, and give them a little bit more relief, which means, you know, if the market comes back to a more of a normal market on the demand, this period might help on the cost side of the equation. And therefore, reporting of builders will be more favorable. Um, but I, I don't see really anything right now that tells me that there's anything changed. It might be individuals. I mean, look, I mean, this is a period that ha is having a lot of us revisit where we are in life. Um, and you might have a, a builder or two where the principal might be at a point where they were 
contemplating uh, retiring or, or have a different change. And as a result, they might decide to, uh, to sell the company. But I don't think that the COVID-19 issue itself is going to change a major change in behavior or, or dynamic of Humboldt. Not even with public. I mean, publics traditionally have just easier access to capital, right? To, to cheaper capital. Do you think there could be some interplay between public and private based on that resulting from well, this? I mean, like again, I can speak to my to my markets in our markets right here. I mean, there aren't many privates left, uh, so I mean, it's all publics, and we started seeing the consolidation being public to public, and I'm not going to be surprised if, if I am right. And we go back to a more, the normal path we're on. And if anything, this might actually create a little bit more of an, uh, an extension of the upcycle. If that is the case, then I'm not going to be surprised if we start seeing you know, more uh, combinations and consolidation in the industry. The, 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 you know, the humbling industry is, is challenged because in many ways, it's been selling itself as a, a manufacturing business and a retail business, uh, but it has it has a lot more challenging challenges than uh, the retail or manufacturing business because the raw material is not readily available and and every home is a factory and a lot of the things that that if you are a manufacturing business you keep on fine tuning to create more of a margin. Uh, home building doesn't have that benefit. Uh, and, and at some point in time, you get to a size where you have to start thinking the business model itself. And I think that, you know, we might actually start seeing uh, builders start thinking about home construction differently, meaning modulars, panelizations, things that give you more efficiency in building a home than using the same nail and the same hammer that we've used for, you know, three, four hundred years. Yeah, that, that 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 makes a lot of sense. It's kind of the, the I, I've heard that argument from some other folks as well, and that that could very well be the the shift that's needed to propel that and to offsite and panelization into even more of a presence. Um, let's switch over to consumers. How do you think are consumers, home buyers, going to change out of this at all? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I don't see anything in the immediate uh, that will change. I think there'll be incremental changes that will start happening and there will be more acceleration of certain things that we all expected to see in the future. Uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, today, people are much more comfortable with, uh, with doing uh, virtual uh, meetings. Uh, I think you know, virtual education is now something that is becoming more of a proven concept. Um, I think as a result of this acceleration of a inability to get comfortable using technology for human interaction in different ways might start having us change the way we start reacting to a consumer who's going to be much more interested in working out of the home, for instance, because some companies might now say, look, we proved it during COVID-19 that we can do a Zoom and we can have a lot of things done without having face-to-face. Why wouldn't we allow our people to start working out of the home part-time or full-time? 
And if that's the case, then we have to react to that consumer by making sure that the space and the technology and everything else is available for that. Um, I think that, you know, those are things that I think the consumer is going to start changing. I mean, whether we start thinking about building schools in ways uh, to adjust for that. But I, I don't think you're going to see anything immediate in the consumer. I think the consumer is going to be extremely sensitized to issues that have to do with healthcare. I think people are going to be asking a lot of questions about, you know, why did New York go through what it went through and had the challenges versus California? And there's a lot of answers to that, in my opinion. But those are questions that will be asked uh, that I think will, will lead to more uh, recognition of, uh, of a need to, as we think about mitigating traffic impacts and other impacts that are created by growth, we need to start thinking about mitigating healthcare needs and making sure that as the population grows, that the, uh, the ability for that population to be served from a healthcare uh, is also uh, being looked at. I mean, those are things that I think will happen. I think that I mean, everybody's going to come out of this thinking about their health. And we better start thinking about the future of healthcare uh, today because consumers are going to demand a different way of handling it. Yeah, well, those are some pretty big things then. I mean, you started answering the question with not not a huge change, but what you just those changes you just said means we got to think about home offices and other spaces within the home. We got to think about in home medical changes in the design of the home, and we have to think as builders have to think about much bulking up on our virtual sales and our how we interact with our buyers. Those are those are big things. Yeah, no, no, those are big things. What I meant is you're not going to see them happen overnight. Okay, those yeah. are those will take time because you know the adjustment to all of that is going to be is going to take time. But I think what I was saying is the consumer is going to be much more open minded. Oh, gotcha. Uh, and actually, we might during this COVID nineteen have put the consumer more ahead of the curve than the, the builders are, are because the consumer now is more ready to accept. And we as an industry have not really been thinking a lot about it. How, so all these things you're talking about, how, are you, how is that sort of helping you figure out how to position Five Point for the future? Are, are you making plans given what's happening now? You know, it's, it's interesting uh, because you know, we, we started this company and the whole strategy of this company from, you know, even when I was still at Lenar incubating it, is to, to take these large positions we have, which basically we're building three cities inside major metropolitan areas, and try to look at each one of them as a model of a city of the future. And because we, we are not going to be the ones building a city from scratch, forget about the infrastructure, but I'm talking about all of the different components. We have not started going out and reaching out to potential partners in each of the areas that we believe is going to be an important component of a city and having those partners come and sit at the table with us and build the city in collaboration. City of Hope in cancer is a great example where they became our partner. And as a result, now we have a much larger universe that's looking at healthcare and, and how do you actually start proving up a different healthcare delivery? How do you start thinking about, uh, you know, sports 
differently. How you start thinking about entertainment differently. Our food and beverage is all an incubation food and beverage. Everything we're doing is all being done with in collaboration with brands that are looking into the future, realizing that they have to adjust their way of doing things. And we're inviting them all to come in and say, if we all can build a showcase of how the future is going to look like, you know, why wouldn't we do it? Microsoft years ago used to have a home that they used to call the home of the future, where you go there and it has all the technology inside the home that they were imagining that is going to be part of the future. Think about it this way. We are building cities that can have a lot of people come and participate in different components of how does the city look like in the future. We started that. We were talking about Uber healthcare way before COVID-19, and we're working on that. We were talking about uh, food and beverage being tied to uh, to healthcare and medical, to fitness, to education. Uh, we're talking about you know, a, an ability to to have a process here where you will be uh, individually assessed and you will have your your unique menu as well as your unique training that day. And we, we started thinking about how do you actually look at utilizing technology and connectivity of all these elements to where when we talk about wellness, we're not only talking about wellness in terms of exercise or somebody says eat better and work out you know, more and you'll be fine, but much more, you know, uh, looking at customizing it. So those are things that we were deep into it. And, and honestly, we spent very little time on the architectural side and much more on on those type of discussions nowadays. So you, uh, you will see us probably be much more uh, accelerating some of this. Uh, and, and you are going to see that what, what we're really going to be focusing on is less uh, the outside facade of the buildings we're building and much more uh, the inside relationship between each of these different elements to create a place that we can start saying, well, this looks like the future. So maybe the city of the future is a little sooner now due to COVID-19. I think the whole world is going to be accelerated as a result of that. I, I think that there's one thing that I feel very comfortable saying will come out of it is that we are, we are going to now accelerate the future, especially in the area of technology, by at least a decade as a result of this. Wow. Okay. Well, look, I mean, look at, look at virtual learning. I sit on a lot of boards of schools and universities. And we've been talking about, you know, virtual classes and virtual learning for the longest time. And a lot of people have online classes. But look at what's happened today. The whole world has been pushed to use it and do it virtually. And whether you're, you're in kindergarten or you're a PhD student, you're actually taking virtual classes. If we don't think we're going to come out of it with a much higher level of comfort, that that's going to be a way of the future. I was talking, I'm on the board of a, of a couple of universities. I was saying, I've been saying for the longest time, why aren't we giving degrees to people all over the world by giving them virtual classes? You know how many people in India and China and the Middle East and Africa who can't come to this country and go to a, a, uh, an Ivy League or a USC or UCLA or, a, or UCI 
if we can actually have them participate from their homes and get degrees, we not only are expanding our footprint uh, as universities, but we're actually helping elevate societies so we can start bridging gaps in between, you know, social levels. Yeah, so yeah, I think that's this the rippling effect of this could be very interesting. That, that's I, I had not thought of that. That would be an amazing effect. You know, sort of make the incredibly coveted U.S. higher education uh, more egalitarian, wouldn't it? I, I suppose whereas now, where it's mostly the very affluent from South Korea and Taiwan, etc. Sure. Right Emil, you've been amazingly generous with your time. So let's end with uh, a little bit bigger picture uh, uh, question. It's just sort of what is your long-term view in a very holistic way for the housing market? Look, I, I think that um, the uh, housing market always follows jobs. I think that, uh, you know, it, it used to be for a while where housing – followed infrastructure that was built. And that was the product of the 50s and 60s and maybe 70s, where because of a lot of the infrastructure that was built uh, to create jobs uh, as a result of the Great Depression, we basically uh, had an ability to start leaping and building these communities in a leap way. But that was very artificial because we basically were inducing growth in areas that were not sustainable, and that's one of the reasons that we had a lot of swings and cycles for the longest time. But housing always follows jobs. And if you look at where the jobs in the future economy are going, uh, they're all heading to more urbanized areas. It's, it's back to the urban core. Uh, that's where innovation is happening. That's where the cluster of think tanks are happening. That's where the employee of the of the new economy wants to be, uh, you know, in San Francisco, in New York, in Boston, in Denver, uh, in places like that. And I think that as a result, the challenge for all of us is going to be how do you actually provide housing for all those people uh, and and make it affordable. I think that you know you're going to see consumers feeling much more comfortable in living in a smaller home than, you know, the previous generation did. Uh, I think that it's going to be a challenge for the secondary tertiary markets uh, on the long term, unless we focus on mass transit, uh, mainly tra trains, high-speed trains that can start connecting places like Bakersfield, for instance, with downtown Los Angeles or downtown San Francisco in 25 minutes. If we can do that, then I would say then we solve a big part of the affordability of housing. But I think where we're heading is, is something that's going to be very similar to what we've seen in places like London and Tokyo and different places where the demand was more in the cities, but the availability of homes in the cities were not great. Can I, I play devil's advocate? I was just going to play devil's advocate for a second. Just we talked about earlier about telecommuting and how COVID nineteen actually might lead to more virtual interaction and more telecommuting. Couldn't that potentially counter this sort of jobs urbanization trend you're talking about? Absolutely, that's what I was going to say. I mean, oh, sorry. I think that the no, no, you're one hundred percent right. The one 
thing that has changed and the one variable that, you know, I wouldn't have put that much emphasis on before COVID-19 that we, we will do that going forward and we have to is could some of these jobs be done in, in areas that are more in the suburban uh, virtually? Uh, probably some, yes, but you still have to ask yourself the question, is that where that generation wants to live? Because a lot of what's driving actually businesses like Salesforce and others to go to San Francisco and New York is because the, the talent itself is saying, unless I'm in San Francisco or in New York, I'm not interested in your company. It's, it's, a, it's, it's like the model is being flipped on its head where talent used to chase employee, employers Today, employers are t- t- change, chasing talent. It's sort of like talent is the, to the digital revolution, talent is what rivers used to be for the agriculture revolution. It's the, it's the main resource that's need, needed. Every CEO of a new economy company is competing for talent. And talent is saying, I really am not interested in suburbia. I'm not interested in the white picket fence. I'm interested in 24-7 lifestyle. I'm okay sleeping in a couch in San Francisco rather than having a home in Tracy. So I think that I think you have to really listen carefully to the consumer before we we jump to is the technology gonna now change the consumer behavior. And I I, I even it's too new to me for me to come to a conclusion. But my instincts tell me uh, we're not going to be able to convince that 26-year-old, 27-year-old that, hey, why don't you buy a home in Bakersfield? Nothing against Bakersfield, by the way. And, and, and go buy a white picket fence in Bakersfield and telecommute, commu- uh, you know, uh, work virtually, and, and you'll be fine uh, because that's, that person is not looking for that lifestyle. Yeah, and until they get married and have a kid, and, and then that couch gets very crowded. It does. Maybe well, they- I have to tell you, I mean, I grew up, as I said, in Beirut, and uh, every family was raised in a flat. I mean, our yeah, home okay. was about 2,000 square feet flat, and we had one of the, you know, relatively bigger. So, you know, people get people get adjusted to, uh, to a lifestyle if they want to stay close to employment and, and everything else. So, yeah. You know, interesting things to see, but I, I, I think that the if I, I think that my bet is still that the world is going to become much more gravitated towards the urban areas, as we were predicting before, um, and uh, nothing's going to change long term. Yeah. So, fa- so focus on the jobs and focus on where talent wants to live. Exactly. I think that, and, and, and not necessarily in that order. I would folk, I would listen very carefully to the talent first and where it wants to go because that's where the jobs, those, the jobs will follow them. I think that's a, that's a great way to end this, Dean, to listen to the consumer and listen to the talent. And um, boy, Emil, you, you gave us some tremendous perspective, a lot of clarity, great vision for the future. I, I think the whole concept of technology accelerating, I just think how much it's accelerated in the last month is, is just amazing. Um, yep. Thank you again for your, your time. This was just invaluable to me and to all the people who are going to be listening. Well, thank you very much. I'm always available. John, 
you and I have been through these times before and we will be we hopefully will be talking to people in good times and in bad times and 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 let people know that uh, there's always a good day that comes after this. Yep, we will. Thank, thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Dean. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Okay, thanks, everyone. That's it. Again, appreciate your time, Emil, and to John. Please join us for the next New Home Insights podcast. See you then.